Eric Roberts is a fucking man He's the greatest fucking actor since acting began We should give him every medal, every trophy and award He's the greatest fucking actor that you've ever seen or ever heard are back in town it's episode number 72 of eric roberts is the fucking man the world's most professional eric roberts related podcast i'm doug tilly and joining me as usual is our man in havana liam o'donnell how are you doing today liam i'm pretty good how are you doing doug is it havana or havana i literally have no idea i thought you would know what you're right because (laughs) since i am half puerto rican Uh i know everything about everything in the caribbean you're right my bad okay well which is it (laughs) <laughs> the second one. Liam, how is life? I know, you know, I don't know if people enjoy hearing us kind of babble back and forth about our personal lives at the beginning of the show, but I I I feel I would feel a little put out if I didn't get a little bit more uh uh personal with you and uh, and what's going on and how your kind of life situation is. I just want to know, are you doing okay, Liam? I mean, we only do this for three minutes. Mm-hmm. When I when I do this on Cinepunks, it's a good first hour of an hour and 20-minute podcast. So. Don't I know it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, things are good. I mean, you know, my new job is a lot less pressure because it's with friends, mm-hmm. but it's also, like, actually physical a lot of times. So at the end of the day, I'm actually exhausted. Liam, I have a quick question. Now, you work at uh, with uh, our good friends at uh, – how do you pronounce it again? Lehigh, the Lehigh <laughs> Valley. Valley. Yes. Uh, oh, it's a very unique and uh, foreign name for you as a Canadian. Mm, so it's the Lehigh Valley. Uh, what's it called again? Productions? Apparel creations. Apparel creations. So you're making T-shirts and other type of of clothing. Uh, for the most part, I mean, we also do buttons and uh, some like posters and stuff. But I, yeah, I, mostly I'm clothing. Not trying to diminish what you do at Lehigh Valley Apparel or whatever. Uh, but what is your most popular? t-shirt that you make at this location <laughs> um we actually do a lot of prints for wrestlers uh uh-huh. and those do from what i can tell must do pretty well and i guess we're also doing merch right now for a band called palm who i've palm. never listened to. yeah p-a-l-m i've never listened to them i don't know what they sound like but we've printed a lot of shirts for them so my guess is they must be doing pretty well well, I would think their wrestler shirts would be doing very well the weekend that we are recording this, uh, Liam, because this is the big wrestling weekend. Oh, is this what is this weekend? I don't know a lot about wrestling. It's the WrestleMania weekend uh, sure. in New Orleans. Now, Louisiana. do other do other uh, so other franchises or other things they have events around wrestlemania as well <laughs> franchises <laughs> i don't know what the fuck it's called there's you a lot know, of in- like there's a lot of independent uh federations that yes they all come to the place where wrestlemania is because there's going to be so many people coming from all around the country and the world just to watch this event that they'll be around that entire weekend and most of them make more money that day or those couple of days than they'll make months afterwards well i know that we do shirts for a bunch of uh chikara wrestlers um, and I know we do shirts for other wrestlers, too, but I don't All right. know. All right, shut up, Liam. Oh, man. Today's guest is a writer, a film critic, and the host of the Someone Else's Movie podcast. It's Norm Wilner. How you doing, Norm? 
I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Actually, I've been wanting to have you on for a very long time. I think Liam was standing in the way for some reason. Isn't that right? <laughs> yeah, I have a rule. Yeah, is there, what's, what is that rule? Uh, the Only so many Canadians at a time. <laughs> that's probably a very fair rule considering yeah, how, how many we have. We have a lot of representation here on the Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man podcast. But Norm, you're legit. You're a legitimate film critic. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I've been, uh, it's still weird. I've been writing about film for 30 years now, uh, uh-huh. since, uh, since I started writing little video reviews for the star in 1990, in 1988. Uh, so I'm old and, uh, because I was writing for home video magazine at the time, I covered a lot of straight to video stuff. And that was, uh, that was the domain of Eric Roberts by the late eighties and early nineties. So yes, I, I guess I'm uniquely qualified to be here. Norm, you ever just get sick of it? Uh, yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, I was, I was at a screening of Insidious, The Last Key in January and just thinking, I don't like this. I don't, there's no need for me to be like, the movie doesn't need me. It's, it's just one of those things that, you know, they talk about giant blockbusters being critic proof, but I think bad horror sequels have their, uh, have their own sort of invulnerability. They're, they're just going to do their, go through their motions regardless of what we want. And, um, it's very, very rare that there's any, you know, the January horror window there's always one terrible, like an underworld or a, a resident. This, this year, I think we had both. And uh, it just beats you down. It's one of those things where I love horror films, um, but uh, the bad ones, they're just extra draining. Yeah, but it, no, when the movies are good, um, it's the best gig in the world. I, I've seen some really great stuff in the last couple of weeks that I'm pretty high on. And uh, it restores, you know, you come, out, you come out of the winter and into the spring and you start to know hope again. Have you thought about switching to TV, Norm? You know, TV's very good right now. People say it all the time. They have me doing TV as well. I, I, I know it. I think I'm. It's not. A, it's past the review embargo. I've just watched the first four hours of Lost in Space this week, and I've got one more episode to go. So, yeah, that's that's another thing that I'm doing that takes up a great deal of time for very little reward. The review embargo is up, Norm. How is Parker Posey in this Lost in Space reboot? Well, she's great. She's just ever so much fun. Um, she's uh, she's playing Dr. Smith, kind of, sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they've done with, with Lost in Space is they basically decided that everybody has a complex backstory. Oh, and if they don't, uh, like um, Judy Robinson, the oldest daughter, they just give her PS- PTSD in the first episode and let her re- wrestle with it for a few uh, hours after that. So, you know, it's darker. It's grimmer. It's uh, definitely not the 98 movie with Gary Oldman and, and uh, oh, poor Matt LeBlanc. He was the only one who knew what kind of movie he was making. <laughs> they also, in that movie from the late 90s, Norm, had a CG chimp, a computer-generated oh, chimp God, alien creature. Right. And, and <laughs> I'm guessing that this new Netflix reboot does not have a, some sort of fanciful uh, computer-generated monkey thing? Uh, no, it does have the robot, which okay. has been totally reimagined as a... Uh, a seven-foot-tall cyber-killing machine that has decided to be a good yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's some good rope. It's got opposable thumbs on both sides of its hands. Oh, my goodness. Ooh, does, yeah. it, does it still wave its arms around frantically? Uh, no, it's very menacing and slow. And uh, all it says, of course, is Danger Will Robinson, but uh, it says it in a really intimidating way. Liam, what's your favorite robot? Um, in real life or in uh, fiction? It's a great question. I'm going to go with fiction, but if you want to follow it up quickly with your real-life example, I'm okay with that. 
Hmm. So in uh, in fiction, I don't know. Honestly, I don't get attached to robots that much. So probably mm-hmm. something like from uh, like R two D two or something like that, just because of the childhood connection, you know. Uh, and then as far as real life, the dog looking robot that can open the door. Uh, yeah, that one's gonna fucking murder us all. What about what about those robots that? people kick around like the scientists are kicking them around no that's the one it can open a door now man i'm telling you we're all dead it's gonna kill us not a fan of time not a fan liam of robbie the robot from the classic forbidden planet uh i'm pretty unfamiliar with forbidden planet all right well back to you norm norm (laughs) i feel like we've strayed no, we haven't. <laughs> yeah, obviously you're not listening to enough episodes of this podcast. What, what do you think we're going to talk about for 90 minutes? Eric fucking Roberts? <laughs> no, Norm, you're a film critic and you have been since the late 80s, which means that you have experienced probably uh, more than your fair share of Eric Roberts projects. So I expect t- so, yeah. So tell me a little bit about your Eric Roberts history. When was the first time you were aware that this was an actor that you loved and that you were going to be forced to watch a lot of his work over decades. Well, I mean, I'm old enough that I saw runaway train in theater. So I guess that was my first experience uh, with him. So I didn't catch up to star 80 until a few years later. Those are the two, like, excuse me, the two key performances. There's Uh, one more, there's one more key performance. And that Greenwich village. That would be Greenwich village. Yeah. I caught that later too. I was a bit young for that one at the time. And um, uh, I don't know when I would have seen that. Probably the early, maybe the late 80s, early 90s. It was just one of those films that I never got around to for whatever reason. And uh, yeah, no, he he had that intensity. He had that focus. He was a a weird physical presence uh, on screen. You just couldn't, you know, you looked at him and nothing else. And so, yeah, all along I've I've sort of been aware of him. And then, yes, I think I saw Best of the Best when it came out on... uh, on video. I, I may have reviewed it. I may not have. And then, oh, then he made uh, The Ambulance, the Larry Cohen movie. And Absolutely. I knew who Larry Cohen was. And so that was very interesting. That was fun for me. Uh, but then he almost immediately started, um, you know, following his instincts a little too much and, and uh, peacocking instead of performing. And, and that's where we get uh, the Eric Roberts of, of, uh, of the straight to video 90s junk. But certainly you would agree. That he is primed for a comeback. Now? Why yeah, not? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. This is the time. This is a 2000. His, hmm? his window was like 10 years ago in the Dark Knight. That was when there was a brief moment. It was like Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights. It's like, oh, yeah, this actor that we like, he, he can play a straight role. <laughs> Excuse me. He can play a straight role. And then he just didn't take anybody up on it. Oh, I don't know if that's the case. And what about, <laughs> what about Inherent Vice? He was in Inherent Vice with that's Paul true. Thomas Anderson. Uh, again, who gave uh, gave Burt Reynolds that Boogie Nights role? He, uh, yeah, Anderson has an amazing ability to use uh, actors appropriately uh, and inappropriately at the same time. And Martin Short in Inherent Vice is another example. He's like these oh, actors yeah. should not be in this film, but they're perfect for it. And yeah, no, it was great to see Roberts pop up in that. But again, did not take advantage of the opportunities that could have come. Well, he had that Vanity Fair article just a couple months ago, which was very, I thought. Uh, um... Uh, optimistic about his future and also very complimentary. Maybe this is it. Maybe it's time to take that uh, that uh, uh, recent exposure and to turn that into some 
uh, blockbuster roles. Now, Liam, you probably heard Norm just then uh, say some eh, not quite so complimentary things about the career of Eric Roberts throughout the 90s, early 2000s. Uncharitable. Uncharitable, if you Uncharitable, but, you know, honest. And we always appreciate honesty here on Eric Roberts (laughs) is the fucking man. I mean, Liam and I have to watch the life and work of Eric Roberts. And why is that, Liam? Uh, Because of that goddamn blood oath. We made a blood oath to watch. Everything that Eric Roberts has ever done, whether it be movie, TV, podcast, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we're, we're not coming at this from a perspective of having a critical eye necessarily, even though we do review every work that we do watch. And it's good to have a critical approach and it's good to have a critical mind and a critical eye so someone on this podcast can be very mean about Eric Roberts for no good reason, Norm. <laughs> What do you think about I will that? not. I will not be shamed. <laughs> uh, I, I have come. I have come by this opinion over decades of uh, of forced uh, time spent with with Eric Roberts in theaters and on video and DVD and laserdisc, every format, you name it. Um, I I want him to come back. I want him to return to the sort of intensity and 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 laser focused method acting that he he used so well in the eighties. Uh, I just don't think he's interested. Well, Norm Wilner, I have a little movie for you called Stocked by My Doctor that might <laughs> turn you around on the Eric Roberts train. I am not familiar with this. And no, well, it it didn't go into theaters, um, <laughs> but it was made for I, Lifetime. That, that title is made for a marquee. Well, certainly, because not only was there a Stocked by My Doctor, but it was followed There's by... There's a sequel. Uh, oh, Norm... Hold on to your chair. Stocked by My Doctor 3 will be coming within the next couple of months. I'm looking forward to it. I know Liam is. Uh, And even if we weren't looking forward to it, we'd have to watch it because we made a blood oath. But uh, whatever your feelings are on Eric Roberts. Is it possible that this blood oath has caused these movies to be made? Uh, You know what? Uh, It is something we've discussed. We did Something ask, else I've learned on on uh, covering a lot of directed video movies is that blood oaths never go the way you think they will. <laughs> well, we've learned that ourselves. We did ask Eric Roberts himself to relieve us of that blood oath when we interviewed him late last year, and he refused. In fact, he said that we had to continue to the bitter end, perhaps even past his own bitter end. So uh, we're in this for the long haul. Liam did not know what he signed up for. Isn't that right, Liam? I literally had no idea. <laughs> but he's locked in and hey, we're going to we're going to make the best of it. And whatever your feelings are, Norm, on Eric Roberts and his career, maybe by the end of this episode, we will turn them around. And the first step on that is taking a look at the latest Eric Roberts news on the Roberts Report. It's the Roberts Report for episode number 72 of Eric Roberts is the fucking man. And as per usual, we start with a deep dive on the man himself's Twitter feed. You can follow Eric Roberts on Twitter at Eric Roberts, all one word. Uh, Eric Roberts has been uh, tweeting lately, as per usual, uh, about the great care that he's received on a variety of airlines. Uh, You can always uh, tell which airline Eric Roberts is flying on because he always tweets about it. In fact, on April 1st, April Fool's Day, he was tweeting about how he was getting such care from at Delta. So yeah, fly Delta, fly the friendly skies. But we're going to move back into some of his previous tweets. Not a lot of Eric Roberts news this week, but some really tremendous tweet material for us to discuss. Back on March 31st, he tweeted, this was in regards to uh, the uh, Jimmy Carter, the former president of the United States of America. He appeared on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And uh, Eric Roberts uh, <laughs> tweeted about it saying, we actually found ourselves applauding in our own home Our applies were from the heart, so who cares that they fell on no ears? We all know. 
Norm, do you know? I do not. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I do not follow Eric Roberts on Twitter, and now I'm thinking I've, I've made a horrible life decision. Well, this look honestly, correcting horrible life decisions is why we are here, and Eric Roberts is the fucking man. But Norm, mm-hmm. when you uh, – uh, oh, actually, you know what I should ask you is I would like for you to rank the previous five presidents of the United States from uh, most appealing to least appealing. So what is that? That's – Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump. That sounds right to me. Um, most appealing to least appealing? Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay, I'm going to go with Obama, tan suit or no tan suit. He uh-huh. was just always incredibly magnetic. Uh, then Clinton, because, you know, still a good guy, I think, deep down, at least meant well. Then maybe George H.W. Bush ran the CIA, knows some stuff, isn't going to tell anybody. Uh, then George W. Bush, cause basically a chimpanzee in a suit. And then the, the, the current occupant who, you know, least appealing. That's mm. just, I mean, he's, he's created a new bottom, which is, which is the, the best thing you can say about his uh, presidency. Now we know where the bottom is and, oh no, there's some more under there. Let's just keep, <laughs> let's keep going. There's going to be more bottom. <laughs> all bottom all the time. It's Trump all the way to the bedrock. Now that we've had your liberal <laughs> perspective, Norm, yeah. I got to move over to renowned conservative mind, Liam O'Donnell. <laughs> Liam, I would like for you to rank the presidents. And actually, I'd like for you, Liam, to go all the way back to Reagan and uh, and also rank them from most to least appealing. Now, Liam, I know you don't like to get political on this show, but I still want to <laughs> Um, I have, so go back to Reagan. Well, that's just one more president before uh, H.W., right? Yeah. That's uh, yeah. not that I, hard. I, look, don't ask me. <laughs> I'm not a part <laughs> of your country. But yes, I believe that's correct. Um, so I would go, uh, Obama is the most appealing of, of these. Uh, then I guess Clinton just after him. Although, um, I feel like right on the heels of Clinton is actually HW just because he didn't have a lot of, he spent a lot of his time on his heels kind of protecting himself. He didn't get to do a lot of bad shit because he was kind of on the defense the whole time. Um, and then, uh, you know, Reagan and Reagan and W are pretty equal in my mind they're sort of on the same level and then a whole bunch of blank space uh, <laughs> and then trump like it's like you know i prior to trump i would have been like well you know w is a clear ass war criminal and a doofus so um that that dude's the worst and then our man trump came in and i was like man i wish i had never said the worst before because it turns out i had no idea what i was talking about liam have you ever applauded at your television before? Um, I've gotten real excited, but I don't think I've applauded. How about you, Norm? Ever ever applauded by yourself or with a loved one at a television? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when when uh, hell, when Guillermo del Toro won the Oscar sure. uh, for best director, I, I may have actually gone woo woo uh, and <laughs> shouted. I I you know when when. Um, yeah, when when things uh, when good things are rewarded, when people I admire are recognized, yeah, I mean, I I get I, I I think the Oscars are, you know, generally an industry joke and usually wrong most of the time. But to see a, a movie that was made with love and and to be so weird be the sort of consensus winner this year was yeah, I may have applauded numerous times and made in Ontario. Yes, right here in Toronto. Uh, there's scenes shot just down the street from my house at the Lakeview. So, so obviously uh, you have a slanted opinion in regards. to Oh that. yeah, no, I'm I'm completely <laughs> tank. I admit it. 
Back on March 30th, a very important tweet from Eric Roberts. Finally, Golden's Mustard has invented a packet that can be opened without a scissors. Hashtag delicious. <laughs> Liam, your thoughts on mustard? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think mustard deserves respect. It's a mm-hmm. good condiment, and it doesn't rely on fucking sugar the way that most condiments oh, do. Oh, fucking sugar. So, um, hard, hard, hard feelings regarding the sugar content of most know, condiments. I got that, you know, that I got that diabetes. That's true. You that's know? true. So I can put mustard on whatever the fuck I want. It's pretty good. Zero but, calories uh, in mustard, Liam. I'm just going to go half ahead and say, and, you know, I love me some some Eric Roberts and all. Um, I've never had to operate a pair of scissors in order to access mustard. I can't what? actually imagine the scenario in which scissors come into play in my use of mustard. I, I'm really confused by this uh, tweet. <laughs> I'm only noticing right now that this tweet has seven retweets and 42 likes. A lot of people agree with Eric Roberts' Golden's Mustard opinions. Norm, mustard on a hot dog? Oh, yeah. Sure, absolutely. Also, who just – you rip through the thing with your teeth. That's hey. what the packet is for. Hey, look. It's... He paid a lot for those teeth. He's not just going to ruin them on a packet of mustard. I, but... I was wondering. I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe they're so jagged that they <laughs> just tear a... – who knows what he's done to himself over the years. Just I know. Spray mustard all over the packet. <laughs> it's true. That's you. It is your job and purpose. <laughs> it's it's my whole purpose. But now that fault, my I asked you about mustard on a hot dog, uh, Norm, so I could follow. Oh no, up. all in. Yeah, mustard on a hot dog. Yeah, no, but I have to follow that up with the classic question: ketchup on a hot dog? I don't think so. I go for the. Uh, I cheat a little. I go for the red relish, which oh. has the tomato equality, but is also more like a salsa. That's true. I think Dirty Harry would even be okay with that. Liam. Ketchup on a hot dog. I grew up with it, so it's mm. hard for me to to get the the attitude that, uh, for example, you might find in Chicago around this issue. But <laughs> uh, because of the because of the the uh, repulsion that Chicagoans feel as to ketchup on a hot dog, I've slowly made the change to just mustard because I love mustard. So I really gave mustard a shot, and if it's a good mustard, mm-hmm. I don't miss that ketchup at all. I, I'm I'm pretty fine with just with just. Uh, Mustard, but I'm I'm not gonna pretend I didn't grow up dipping my fucking hot dog into some ketchup as a kid. That was my shit. I was swearing <laughs> there for no good reason. Uh, uh, Liam, it sounds to me like you were bending to peer pressure in regards to. Is that something you often do? It's just that if enough people tell you that you shouldn't be enjoying ketchup on a hot dog, that you just say, "Okay, I guess I'll never have ketchup again." No, I'm just open to other cultures, uh, and I'm not a, uh, you know, <laughs> Sorry, I'm not as xenoph- xenophobe the way that you are. And <laughs> Chicago so, like, culture? When an, entire, Chicago when, an, when an entire city is like, you should never put ketchup on a hot dog, you should only put mustard, I thought, well, let me give that a try just to see what they're talking about and see how I feel about it. And over time, I don't know. I, I mean, honestly, I'm also... Uh, in a related note, trying not to have that much ketchup anyway. All it's just right. fucking right. sugar paste. All, you right. Know? All right. Okay. Now, I do feel like <laughs> I feel like the whole Chicago thing is based on that line by Dirty Harry. And we all know Dirty Harry is a fascist. So I don't know why everyone is so up in arms to agree with whatever Dirty Harry has to say on the subject. But uh, moving on. <laughs> Who's Dirty Harry again? I forget. That, that would be uh, Mr. Uh, Clint Eastwood. I'm just messing with you. I know you are. Back on March 30th, Eric Roberts tweeted... Everyone's talking about, at Judd Apatow's, shandling creation. It's like going through someone's garbage and having it turn to strands of diamonds in your hands. Hashtag masterpiece. Now, this is referring to the recent documentary that Judd Apatow has made about the great comedic mind, Gary Shandling, who passed away uh, a few years ago, sadly. Uh, I actually have not seen 
the documentary yet. Norm, have you seen this documentary? I have not. No, the uh, the links showed up when I was away in London, and I I missed the opportunity. Thoughts on Gary Shandling, Liam? Um, Gary Shandling is uh, this is going to be hard to explain. Oh boy. Um, just in the sense of like because we're uh, uh, I'm trying to think of something. Gary Shandling is a <laughs> cultural phenomena that I should know more about, and I. Mm. The little bit I do know, I really respect, but I kind of missed out on the Larry Sanders show. Like, I didn't really see any of it. So I feel like I don't get Gary. Sh- you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that was an important thing in a lot of people's lives that I missed out on. So while I think what I know of Gary Shandling, I, I think he's funny. I don't know him, know him the way he's he didn't impact me the way other people. He did other people. You know what I mean? Well, I do know what you mean now, Liam, because you explained it in a long, rambling sentence just now. Ah, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> what I was going to say is he's like a – I was. Oh, that was not an invitation reference. to speak more about Terry oh, Shandling. Jesus, I hate you so fucking much. <laughs> Back on March 29th, Eric Roberts tweeted, Did you hear about the criminal action where many squirrels were rounded up and murdered because they were thought of as pests? We must protest! I'm going to start with you, Liam. Now, we, longtime listeners of uh, Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man, know that uh, in the Roberts household, Eric and Eliza Roberts, they have a squirrel sanctuary that they have injured squirrels rehabilitated in their very yard. So if you go to the Roberts household, you will be surrounded by squirrels. They love squirrels. Um, What is he talking about here, Liam? I literally have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I guess it was something. It must have been something locally, right? It wasn't like a national murder squirrels effort. It's got to be a local thing. So it's not something that like affects you know my squirrels. My squirrels are safe, Doug. Is what I'm trying to get at. I looked up. Uh, I just uh, looked up on Google uh, the word squirrel. Squirrel and, murder. Squirrel murder. <laughs> and uh, the first thing that comes up is from pestkill.org which is how to poison a squirrel in or around your house, yard, and then it just sort of trails off. Maybe that's what Eric Roberts is referring to, Liam. Now, Norm, you live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which is famously overrun by squirrels. Yep, home of the squirrel. Home? It's amazing It's amazing that they're not our national mascot. Oh, well, I mean, the raccoons are the, national, are the mascot of Toronto, but uh, squirrels are at least as prevalent, yes. I did. I was in Toronto just a couple of weekends ago, and I did run into a number of raccoons in very public scenarios. It was quite something. But I want to get your thoughts, Norm, on the uh, the humble squirrel. Even though you are surrounded by them at all times, do you still enjoy seeing a squirrel, or do you think of them as a pest? Let's say I don't see squirrels as pests. No, they're they're adorable little creatures with big bushy tails who run around real fast and give my dog something to do in the backyard. Um, I. I, uh, what I like actually the most about squirrels in Toronto is watching tourists who have clearly never seen one up close <laughs> stand stock still, whip out their phones, and start taking pictures of them wherever they are. Walk through Queens Park or or Trinity Bellwoods, and you'll there's always you know in any w- decent weather there will be one person who's just like ah, just just transfixed, and it's delightful. It it lets you reconnect with childlike innocence. <laughs> People do love squirrels. People who they haven't. Do encounter them all the time look again back in newfoundland where i'm from we have squirrels but i wasn't seeing them all the time here where i live in ontario there's squirrels everywhere i'm living in a gosh darn squirrel jamboree out here liam i mean yeah i'm pretty familiar with squirrels all right great hey liam have you ever been to atlantic city yeah why well if you're at the showboat in atlantic city (laughs) before 
Uh, you're actually listening to this, listeners of the show, because this is April 7th and 8th, and this episode will not come out until immediately after that. But if you are in Atlantic City, you can go to the Garden State Comic Fest, which uh, has a performance by a Toronto local's The Cybertronic Spree. But as well, they're going to have appearances by people like actors Eric Roberts, Summer Glau, David Dostmalchian, who's probably from a, a property I'm not aware of, as well as some uh, famous comic book artists like Jim, uh, Jim Steranko and Kevin Eastman. Liam, have you ever been to a comic book convention? So I've been to Wizard World in Chicago twice because of uh, Bruce Campbell Horror Film Fest, which, yeah. as you know, became Cinepocalypse because mm-hmm. we went there and talked to Eric Roberts. Yeah, I do remember that. Norm, have you ever been to a comic convention? I don't know that I have. Not in an unofficial capacity. I've done interviews around them, but uh, I don't believe I've ever attended. No, I don't think I have. Is it because it just doesn't have a lot of appeal to you because of all the people and because it's so corporate, man? Anything like that? I don't know. You know, Comic-Con sounds like it would be fun to do once just for the experience. Sure. Uh, it's like I went to Cannes once. I would love to go to Cannes again. You see movies. It's beautiful. You're in the south of France for 10 days. There is no downside. Um, except, you know, like the one terrible French black and white film, which is so <laughs> full of itself that you want to set the theater on fire so you can go home. But I think Comic-Con... I would have, this is going to sound so lame, but I think I would have liked to go in 2002 or 2003 uh, before they became what they are now, these giant marketing machines that are you know, packed with hundreds of people stuffed into a room to watch a trailer and hear a director talk about it. I would have liked to have gone back when it was a comic book convention sure. as opposed to a everything that is marketable to this uh, nerd group festival. And, you know, I, they've lost. But the com- doesn't the comic stuff and... still happen, though? Like, it's not like the comic stuff. It does, stuff. but it's, you know, it's, it's like relegated pushes. into yeah. a corner, right? Yeah, but Norm, but, but Norm and Liam, comic books is movies now. <laughs> That's true. That's also true. But I, <laughs> I, wanna... I, I have a friend who goes every year and he's been going for a long time. And for him, he actually kind of likes it this way, even though it's like the comic section is smaller because, uh, no one goes to the comic artist <laughs> section anymore. They don't care. So he gets to meet all the artists he wants without waiting in line because that part of the convention is no longer a priority. Right. That would be fun, I think. I mean, it to, is. To I can have see a that, shelter. Yeah. Ex- I mean, I can see how that would be great for me as a visitor, but it sounds much more shitty for the people who are actually involved in the comic industry who are just like everyone's looking at the new Star Wars trailer next door and no one gives a shit about their beloved art. But speaking of beloved art... This is now what seems like our weekly update on Michael Flatley, the former Lord of the Dance, or perhaps current Lord of the Dance, I don't want to judge. Uh, Over at mentalfloss.com, there's an article titled, When Michael Flatley Was Lord of the Dance. So it did seem like that it's referring to in the past tense, so maybe he is no longer the Lord of the Dance. Now, Liam, we are going to have your mother on the show to talk about Michael Flatley. Because no, she, she saw she saw that, and she's very much wanted me to know that that's not going to happen. Really? Because she liked the tweet. Uh, I, I didn't even know she had a Twitter account until she liked it, but she seemed pretty positive. She thought it was funny, mm-hmm. but she's definitely not going to do it for two reasons. One, she's not interested in being on a podcast, which, right. you know. Even okay, with her fine. son. Okay, that's great. Yeah, she's just not – that's just not a thing she wants to do in the world. And two, because I had my facts wrong, and she does not like Michael Flatley. Okay. She fact. <laughs> 
hates Michael Flatley. Oh. That the the memory I had was that I had a friend in high school who actually liked it, and he made us watch it because he <laughs> thought it was so cool. And my mom actually was just humoring him, and she was like, "I fucking hate him. Like that's he's not oh. good at all." And I was like, "Oh my bad, mom. I didn't realize." Setting the record straight here on Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Liam O'Donnell's mom, not a fan of Michael Flatley. But this is some information that should interest you, Norm. Uh, Michael Flatley is going to be starring in a spy thriller, which he has directed and I think written himself called Blackbird. Uh, he, oh, at the very least, yeah, that's right. And he's going to star in this uh, alongside Eric Roberts. And, uh, and of course, we've been keeping a close eye uh, as this has been progressing <laughs> over the last little bit. I'm sure this will have a, a lengthy theatrical run in Toronto, so I'm sure you'll get to watch it, Norm. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Michael Flatley before I move on to the very important piece of information about him I need to reveal? Uh, the only thing I can ever say that I've thought about Michael Flatley is that it is remarkable that he can make his lower body move while keeping his upper body absolutely rock solid still. That's literally the only quality of his that I've ever noticed. He is, from what I've seen, uh, Liam Atmore. a headband. He yeah, has that, a headband. I don't know if he has a headband in the movie. He does look a little jacked, a little swole, as the kids say. Uh, so, I mean, he's keeping himself in good shape. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe you have to be to be a secret special agent, <laughs> as he will be in this movie, Blackbird. But this, the important information I need to impart upon you is that Michael Flatley, known as a dancer and now as an actor and director, he also paints, albeit in an unconventional way. Flatley produces abstract works by dipping his feet into paint. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was going to be the feet. I knew it. I just, and moving I them it. across the canvas. Oh, no. Yeah. So, I mean, I think anyone listening right now are picturing Michael Flatley's chiseled feet. Oh, uh, God. Dripping with mustard-colored paint. This is uh, so awful. Well, Liam, are you not a fan of feet? I mean, everything about what you're saying is just like a horror show for, I think, most humans. <laughs> but do you now, from what I just said, and I'm reading directly from this Mental Floss article, is what you're picturing in your mind him river dancing on the canvas with the paint on his feet? Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's so you're basically getting a piece of river dance. And getting at least some skin cells from his feet. Oh, God. For the Michael Flatley aficionado, I can think of no better piece of work to have in your house or apartment than a uh, 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 an art piece uh, created by the Lord of the Dance himself. So uh, is he dancing on the canvas or is he flinging his feet outward ooh. at the canvases that are propped up on the wall like a Pollock? Yes, like a Pollock or like those elephants that have been taught to make paintings. Sure. <laughs> I, I can't speak for that, but I look, I guarantee you that we will do a little research and get an answer to that question. I, I'm very curious to see, and in fact, I'm going to pause right now. I'm going to look up Michael Flatley paintings. So I There's got to be video. Mm-hmm. Paint, paint, oh, paintings for sale. What do we, oh, it's a picture of Michael Flatley. Oh, if I go to an art, there's eight pieces. How much are they? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Well, they look awful, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> they do not look as if they've been river danced upon. Actually, some of them do, but I can tell you. Uh, in fact, let's uh, let's turn this into a small game. <laughs> Norm, our guest yes. uh, this week on Eric Roberts is the fucking man. In pounds, which you'd be very familiar with, having just come back oh, from England. God, <laughs> how would you? How much do you think? Uh, lot twenty nine called 
The Power, this is a painting by Michael Flatley, how much do you think it's going for? Well, judging from your gasp earlier, it's going to be more than I think. No, so... it can't, it's not going to be crazy. Let's not go nuts here. Uh, okay, let's see. Mm-hmm. 30,000 pounds? <coughs> okay, that's that's your guess. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's perfect. I can see it's how like... anyone might choke on their own. Yeah. <laughs> Liam, in pounds, what do you say? I know it's let's difficult because say, you can't see the painting. Let's say ten. See. Let's say ten thousand pounds. Ten thousand going low, right? I'll bid zero dollars. No, sorry. Uh, the correct amount for lot twenty nine, Michael Flatley's The Power, is an estimate between seventy thousand and ninety thousand oh, pounds. God, this is acrylic on Marley, monogrammed lower right, <laughs> one one hundred and fifty centimeters. So, uh, if you are interested. In picking up Michael Flatley's The Power, head on over to Invaluable.com, which also has an array of other Michael Flatley work, which ranges from 20,000 pounds uh, upwards as far as 90,000 pounds. So check that out over at Invaluable.com or just throw your money directly in the garbage. Recently added to the ever-expanding Eric Roberts IMDb page is 2018's when We Dance, The Music Dies, from director Anthony DeLioncourt, who helmed the 2016 crime thriller Thorns for Flowers. Now, I do not know what the plot summary of this movie is. It has recently, very recently, been added to the Internet Movie Database. It does have a, a very interesting cast. Liam, this will interest you for some reason. Um, it features William Ragsdale. Do you remember William Ragsdale, Liam? No. Or what would I know him from? Well, you would know him from the original Fright Night. Uh, where, oh, sure, 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 sure. And of course, from Herman's Head. Remember the sitcom Herman's Head? Oh, Jesus, yes. It also features uh, 80s Stallworth uh, Catherine Mary Stewart from, uh, well, I'm the, the, the movie that immediately jumps out to me is The Last Starfighter. Uh, she was in all sorts of 80s properties. Uh, and Eric Roberts plays a character named Clayton Riggs. Yeah, the movie's called When We Dance, The Music dies seeing that cast those names together norm are you interested in seeing when we dance the music dies i'm just interested from the title frankly i need to know what that means Uh are they murdering are they murdering a band are they like how do you are they kill dancing is there some other kind of i'm very curious maybe maybe they're in they're at a location where dancing is completely inappropriate for the kind of music that's being played and they start to dance and the music just cuts off. They're like no dancing. And that's maybe that's what it's all about though. I do want to hear more about this kill dancing that you were referring to just I'd moments like to ago. Know. I'm thinking of, um, Oh, uh, Sophia Batella in, uh, in the first Kingsman movie with the, with the sword legs. Oh, you know, why mm-hmm. not? What else mm-hmm. can I, will Eric Roberts, Clayton Riggs be, f- <laughs> be, Featuring some sword legs in the film When We Dance, the Music Dies. I guess we'll have to check it out. Liam, will we be watching this movie? Uh, Blood Oath. Blood Oath. We made a Blood Oath. He got there. He knows about it. Yeah. So as long as this movie gets completed and is released, and perhaps even if neither of those two things happen, we will be watching When We Dance, the Music Dies at some point in the future. Before we take our first break, uh, I do want to mention that as of the recording of this, it is April uh, 5th. 5th i should know what date it is april 5th which is the day before friend of the show's uh friend of the show ryan prowse's film low life is being released on vod and getting its uh main theatrical release we want to oh yeah yeah we want to wish ryan all the best he was recently on an episode i know of cinepunks.com which i'm sure you were going to plug at the end 
as well. But, uh, you know, best wishes to Ryan. Best wishes to the release of Low Life. It's a film that both Liam and I enjoy very, very much. And uh, and we want to see lots of success. So we can, both yourself and myself, Liam, we can say, you know, Ryan Prowse, the director of whatever, we knew him before he was famous. Right, Liam? Yep. I can't wait. I'm going to rub it in people's faces. I'm, I've already started. It's actually kind of embarrassing. <laughs> but we have to take our break, our first break. And when we return, we need to talk about the main event. It's 1993's Love, Cheat, and Steal. We'll talk about that right after this. Smoke from the Lucy drip, hold it like a crucifix. Blow from the nose, I'm a dragon to a nose. Got an average of being excellent, the median just dope. Like the ratio of heroin, the laxative is sold. Authorities are spoken, a man in pure devotion. Get magnetized to the ground while the Falcons are murder closing. I chose to go guano, y'all know kind of bad shit. The bright lights are fuckery, stuck in me automatic. A teabag of piranha tank, heart barely beating a wild one. I swim like directly after he's eating, we're holding a toaster rubber. And it's plugged with a fork in it Cause death by electrocutions like life in New York In it, should've been a dentist Mom said it pains the way that my craft expresses Born with a little shop of horns, I can't even afford to rent it Where's the exit? Wanna talk shop, I can chop it up with exacto touch What's the rush? Autograph skin flash Tag them all, I don't brag enough You they back those suck Paul Harrington thinks he has the perfect wife Stunning, kind, and ambitious Yet behind Lauren's pretty face Lies a wicked person who sent her former boyfriend to jail By setting him up Reno Adams has lost seven years of life in jail and wants revenge. After escaping, he tracks Lauren down and intends to make her and her husband's life a living hell. It's Love, Cheat, and Steal from the year 1993, the golden age of cinema back in 1993, directed and written by William Curran. Now, I I don't... Usually, at this point in the show, I'll talk... I'll run down some of the credits that the director and writer have uh, have in their, their history... William Curran literally has no other directorial or written credits. Uh, and I tried to do a little research on the subject. I can't find anything about him. So if you, the listeners, know anything about William Curran uh, and I can track him down, please let me know. But this film does have a very interesting cast. It stars John Lithgow. Yes, the uh, the le- legendary John Lithgow as Paul Harrington. Eric Roberts as Reno Adams, as we just mentioned in the title. And Madchen Amick uh, from Twin Peaks as Lauren Harrington. That would be John Lithgow's uh, younger wife in this uh, in this film. This is a uh, sort of a romantic thriller, slightly neo-noirish, uh, has a lot of twists and turns, especially at the end, which, boy, you won't see coming unless you absolutely do. There's also some interesting uh, faces in the supporting cast. Uh, Donald Moffat uh, from, well, I think of him immediately from John Carpenter's The Thing is in here. Dan O'Harely from uh, Robocop is here. Uh, and also an appearance... Uh, by uh, Danny Trejo uh, briefly in this as well. But we'll get to all of that. The first thing I want to talk about, this is now um, one of a series of erotic thrillers from the 90s that we've covered on Eric Roberts is the fucking man. I'm not going to lie to either of you, and I think we've already made it uh, pretty clear in those previous episodes. It's not a genre that I particularly have a lot of affinity for. When Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction and those kind of movies were were kind of uh, tearing up the screen, it, you know, it's... It, it's not something that I have uh, a lot of nostalgia for and I don't go back to very much. But Norm, as someone who was a critic during that time period, what are your thoughts on the classic erotic thriller? Uh, they're very hard to get right. Yes. They're, um, they are almost always cheesy exaggerations 
of uh, of film noir tropes from the 30s and 40s uh, with nudity and with uh, saxophones, almost always saxophones. Mm. And uh, almost every one of them blows it because you just, uh, what, what a filmmaker finds sexy is not necessarily what an audience will find sexy and vice versa. And actors making these movies are either too calculated or way too open and you know think about um al pacino and sea of love just baying like a manatee uh (laughs) during the sex scenes apparently because he was not getting along with ellen barkin and he was just trying to make the footage unusable but it's all they kept it it's in the movie (laughs) and uh that's not that was that was sold as a hugely sexy 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 thriller and you just see it and no it is not it is not any of those things or body of evidence with Willem Dafoe and, <laughs> excuse me, Madonna just, just clearly acting like, uh, like robots um, in their sex scenes because they're, neither of them cares and they're just checked out. And, and Love, Cheat, and Steal, I mean, does it qualify as an erotic thriller? It has a couple of fairly explicit sex scenes, I suppose. It, I mean, it does. I think it, it wants to be boundary pushing, I think, in some ways, which is another kind yeah. of defining aspect of those kind of early 90s thrillers you're right it doesn't fit into that mold exactly but it does have some of those noir elements at least it's it's kind of aiming for it and the sex scenes are a little more explicit than well really that even that you would see now in these kind of films uh and you know you see things in it like you wouldn't expect to see like uh male on female oral sex as well as john lithgow's barely clothed bottom uh kind of grinding into uh, a young lady not something that you'd ever expect to see in a movie no, but um, that is how that is how it worked, right? Like there were there were there were no rules at the time. There were no boundaries that couldn't be crossed. So why not just go for it? And the the sexual politics of the film are, I mean, borderline vile. Uh, even if you accept that Metronomics character is playing uh, Eric Robertson, stringing him along, he pretty much almost rapes her at least mm-hmm. once. Then tells her that would be too easy, uh, and. Um, it's just ugly. It's just, it's really, and he, you know, again, Eric Roberts is going to commit to the scene because that's the kind of actor he, he is at this point in the nineties. He'll do whatever they ask of him and he'll give a hundred percent. And it's just really unpleasant. That, that and, is uh, a particularly unpleasant moment in this, in this movie. And it's one that kind of rings later. I guess they really, it, it's such shorthand for establishing that, Hey, this character is a piece of shit, but you know, we did just see him murder a couple of people like the scene yeah. before didn't really necessarily have to have that in there. But no, it's not necessary. It's uh, it's it's clearly. I mean, psychologically, I guess it's realistic in that rape is about power, and it's a power move, and he says right. as much. But he's also just he's his his big reveal is that he's not going to go through with it, which means he's just thrown this woman around and terrorized her, her his former wife for no good reason other than the fact that he has been uh, waiting to hurt her. For seven years, which is the first thing we learn about him in his little monologue at the beginning of the movie. Uh, I've been waiting to do you harm. So, you know, woo. <laughs> Liam, I've already had your thoughts on erotic thrillers. I don't, I, if I remember correctly, you're not a big fan. Is that correct? Yeah, they don't, they, they don't work either in either direction. And also they, as with this one, the sexual politics tend to be very skewed and usually fairly unpleasant. I mean, if you, even something as um, as polished as Basic Instinct, which, you know, was at the time it came out. And again, we all love Paul Verhoeven and, and we wish him the best. There are elements of that that's kind of, that are pretty unpleasant to watch uh, now and, and feel dated. And there's certainly a lot of dated elements 
in this as well. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail in a moment. But before we get into that, I want to talk about the title of this movie. Love, Cheat, and Steal. Now, um, Norm, you mentioned previously that you likely had seen this movie when it initially came out. Um, I had not seen it before. I had heard of it, certainly, because I host an Eric Roberts-related podcast. When I pictured what this movie was about, uh, I I figured that it was going to be sort of like a romantic comedy, something along those lines. <laughs> Love, cheat, and steal. Uh, of course, a play on the classic lie, cheat, and steal phrase. Um, doesn't really kind of uh, give you a strong uh, sense of what this movie is going to be about. We all know a good or bad title can make or break a film. Liam, what do you think about this title, Love, Cheat, and Steal? Um, I don't – I mean, it feels like a poorly thought-through pun, right? Like it's lie, cheat, and steal, but they changed it to love, and I'm supposed to think that's like <laughs> Is that a fun pun? and witty. Is that really – would you categorize No, but it? you know, it's a play on a popular phrase. I don't know. It's pretty terrible, and uh, it does have a certain like goof – because it's playing off of that sort of uh, terminology, it has a goofy feel. It's like a dad joke. So it's a dad joke to describe like what? Like uh, a sexual thriller? Like it's it's weird. It's a weird fit for the film. Well, Especially since the film has kind of no sense of humor whatsoever. No, it certainly does not. Uh, back to you, Norm. I, I'm going to guess that you think this title is pretty stupid, and I can't really blame you for it. But I want to go back to your thoughts on the actor John Lithgow. At, uh, at the beginning of the show, you mentioned that this man can do just about anything. Here he's playing uh, not exactly against type, uh, but it certainly doesn't have sort of the quirkiness that you see in a lot of his best-known roles or uh, maybe kind of the exaggerated elements that you see in his comedic roles. Here he's playing a very kind of straight-laced uh, banker businessman type character who slowly realizes that this uh, insidious person in his life uh, that that has uh, presented himself as his wife's brother is actually her ex-husband that that he means him harm that he wants to rob his bank yeah there's a bank heist in this as well um what do you think of john lithgow's performance here and uh and and i mean this let to, to make this a little easier on you what are some sure. john lithgow performances that you would rank ahead of this one. <laughs> well, it's funny. While I while I was watching this, I was trying to place it in the continuum of you sure. know, what he was doing and where he was at the time and what he was, what films he was making. But you know, by 1993, he'd already done like everything. He went so far over the top in the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. He was grounded in be- and and sort of beautifully underplaying a trans role in the mm-hmm. world according to Garp, and that was like 82, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in terms of endearment as, as just a perfectly nice person who happens to uh, be distracted by Deborah Winger at a point in his life. That was 83. So this is 10 years on, and he's all, he's also just recently done, I was trying to remember when Ricochet was, the Denzel oh. Washington thriller, where he played the milky-eyed maniac monster guy you know similarly, uh, that was just 1990 i think yeah i think you might be correct and i just wanted to mention you might actually have just been mentioning this i, I apologize if i'm jumping on mm-hmm. what you were going to say but of course 1993 was the year of cliffhanger that's right where again over the top and and i want to say british maybe australian he was definitely playing <laughs> with an accent so this is just like He's not doing anything. He's he seems like a very affable person. This is probably as close to the real John Lithgow I suspect that we've seen, uh, and I don't know if that's intentional or just because you know there's nothing for him to do except play uh, a well-meaning patsy. 
and whether or not you know like that is that turns out to be true about his character he does that very well and he's so affable and and sort of casually enthusiastic about everything he's you know he's trying to help out his dad by running a bank and he loves his young wife and his his young wife has a brother and he's going to be nice to him because he's family he seems like just like an absolutely generic decent human being kind of kind of role and I just wonder if that's because no one is directing him and he simply didn't fill it with anything but himself. I, uh, I, I can't help but have noticed, Norm, that when you were listing the great roles of John Lithgow, you failed to mention Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah, well, <laughs> he's fine in that. Uh, I, I have never been as much of a fan of that film as other people are. It's people are, fine. People are it's, fans of that movie? <laughs> oh, yeah. There are people who love Harry and the Hendersons. We, uh, you know, we have a now screening series. Every month we screen a film at the Royal, and uh, at least once every six months someone asks us to program that. And it's well, not the same person either. It's it's kind of disturbing. Well, this one goes out to the Henderson heads out there. Liam, over to mm-hmm. you. Now, I know that you hate capitalism. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm not a fan. Not a fan. Well, John Lithgow's character in this film is a capitalist. He likes money. And he likes a bank, which he works in. And he likes to control the money in that bank. But that – by the way, so in case I didn't make that clear from the plot this, uh, summary at the beginning, which I did not – there's a secondary plot happening in this movie. There's all that Eric Roberts business and John Lithgow and his new wife. But this bank that he's come into this uh, smaller town to run, it, it, they are uh, laundering money to like uh, some sort of organized crime through this. And the people who work at this bank, some of them are actually aware of this laundering and they don't want to be discovered by John Lithgow at all. And this is all going to come together beautifully at the end of the movie. But Liam, because of your hatred for capitalism, did you have trouble sympathizing with John Lithgow's character? Well, no. I mean, he's motivated to do a good job because of his dad. He's been brought in partly because of his relationship to his dad. So I kind of felt – I mean, don't get me wrong. He's a fucked up rule follower in general. So that's like a thing. But then what ends up happening is like as soon as it becomes clear he's in a no-win situation. Like there's no way for him Mm -hmm. to rectify this – problem without screwing everything up the fact that he comes up with such a creative solution though the plot is well in the sense that the plot is very convoluted but the idea of itself is like kind of cool like all right so the secondary plot it there's a way to look at the movie where the secondary plot is where all the actual action is and that eric roberts it's like let's just keep this asshole distracted long enough that he doesn't murder my wife and then once we get past that we're, we're good to go um the, and and the secondary plot is actually what's really going on in the film. It's just that the film itself is so poorly constructed that when it has the big reveal at the end, you're like, wait, what, what, what happened? How? Okay, sure, fine. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Don't get ahead of yourself, Liam. We're going to have you explain the plot at the ending. Sorry, we're going to have you explain the ending of this movie to us in just a couple of minutes. But I also just to, to stick on this uh, this John Lithgow sympathy train. John Lithgow is not only a uh, money-loving capitalist, his best friend is a cop, another group of people that you hate. Oh, yeah, I'm not a fan either. <laughs> I mean, it, it, to be fair, th- we don't see this cop do a whole lot. Like oh, the, the, most, the most copying he does is just for Jonathan Lithgow to like help him out to know who this dude in his house is. Yeah, still. Well, 
obviously they have a very strong relationship, which we'll get to in just uh, a couple of minutes. Danny Trejo makes a small appearance in a bar fight in this, which is notable because a long-time listeners of the show, very long-time listeners of the show, will know that Danny Trejo's very first film role was in Runaway Train, where he taught Eric Roberts how to box in that movie. And here we are, a Runaway Train reunion in Love, Cheat, and Steal, with Danny Trejo once again getting his ass beat by Eric Roberts in a bar. Liam, did you, did you notice that? Were you like that excited about that? Or were you not because you were not part of the show when I covered Runaway Train? <laughs> uh, I was not part of the show when you covered Runaway Train. Norm, do you like a good heist movie? I do. Th- this wasn't one, but I do like them. <laughs> Uh, they can, they're, they're fun. They're, you know, Soderbergh sort of perfected them with the oceans trilogy and then Logan Lucky just last year. Oh yeah. Uh, it's just fun to watch all the moving parts. It's great to have, you know, you have the opportunity to have colorful personalities, bright colors visually. Uh, you can do almost anything with them. Um, Soderbergh told me once to drop a name that, uh, oh that the oceans movies are his versions of superhero films. Oh. They're the closest he's going to get because it's about talented individuals all coming together as a team and using their powers to do something. And, and speaking always, of Cockney accents, how about that Don Cheadle? Don Cheadle, exactly. And he says that Cheadle has a, a rationale for it that he'll never share, which <laughs> which I think is wonderful. And and actually connecting back to what we're talking about here, of course, the the wonderful uh, Julia Roberts, who we of course never mentioned here on Eric Roberts is the Foggy Man. She appears in uh, uh, two of those movies. Where That's do you right, fall? Yeah. Where do you fall in the Ocean's Twelve train? Uh, oh, I love it. I okay. I love it. I think it's amazing. It sets up uh, and then immediately throws away. Uh, a perfect clockwork sequel and just says, you know what? No, we're going to do something completely different. And everything that we uh, teased, everything that you think you want, we're not going to give you that, but we're going to give you something else. And I, I, I think it's marvelous. I, that moment where um, Julia Roberts as Tess, as Julia Roberts recognizes Bruce Willis <laughs> and responds to him like a person responding to a, a famous person is just one of my favorite things she's ever done. Where does this heist go? go? <laughs> no, I, I think you justified <laughs> your position very strongly. Where yeah. does the heist go wrong here, Norm? Oh, well, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not a very well thought out. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm joking on it. It's all right. Uh, it's, it's not a very well thought out heist if, you know, you don't notice the large pressure block that pops up when you take the last stack of money. Uh, it's just it's so... It's so ill-conceived. Uh, I mean, the, the, the setup to the heist is way more fun than the heist itself, which is never supposed to be the thing. Right. Like, the heist should be the climax. It is, the, like, narratively, it's the climax of the film, and it's supposed to be the bit where all the stuff happens. And instead, the, the high point to me is the, the moment where Lithgow knocks on, a, on the, 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 the employee washroom door and says, you know, we're going to have to cancel the tour, and, and Roberts is just in there sketching out the vault and... <laughs> doodling his little map of the bank it's like yeah okay fine it's that's exactly how much regard i think the filmmakers had for the heist the heist it's, it's, yeah it's it a thing seems, that has to happen but no one cares it, it certainly seems secondary to uh, all the other things that are going on just over to you for a second liam favorite heist movie hmm. i don't have one off the top of my head i'm not really a big heist movie person it's not something i care a lot about as a as a kind of film right because you hate capitalism and really the idea of just stealing a bunch of money is almost like participating in capitalism no i just don't i i mean i like them but there's not there's none that i'm like oh this movie is really important to me and it's a big heist movie i it's it's something that i enjoy but it they don't stick with me in a large way you know 
What about uh, Rafifi? Rafifi, I was going to say Rafifi, or you know what, any of the Mission Impossible movies, which inevitably has a high sequence, mm-hmm. uh, including the first one, which has a Rafifi sequence. That's that's fair. I do like the first Mission Impossible. Uh, my Mission Impossible is sort of like a, a bell curve. I like the first one, and then I like the most recent two. <laughs> Mm. You're telling me you don't like the second one? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's no yeah, it's not something I can watch. I don't like the second one and I um I don't hate the third one, but it's not something I enjoy. Oh, but it has Philip Seymour Hoffman impersonating right. Tom Hanks and imper- yeah, Tom Cruise impersonating Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm good. Give me a good double blind anytime. <laughs> well, now that we've wasted enough time not talking about the ending of this movie, let's talk about the ending of Love, <laughs> Cheat, and Steal. I've had both Liam and Norm, before we started recording, explain the ending to me. I preferred Norm's explanation, but I'm going to have Liam tell us. What happens at the ending of the movie, Liam? So, uh, using various uh, uh, pressures and threats of of. Uh, violence and whatever else Eric Roberts has gotten um, uh, John, Jonathan Lithgow's uh, Jonathan wife. Lithgow <laughs> oh, I keep saying Jonathan <laughs> oh my god acclaimed John... actor Jonathan Lithgow <laughs> okay he's gotten uh, he's gotten uh, um, Laura, Lauren Harrington is now going to assist him in this uh, heist um, and uh Lithgow's character sort of reaching a point with these money launderers where he's, you know, he's basically been forced to go along with it. And we know that the money's being kept in the safety deposit box. So uh, they, uh, they Liam, have... actually, Liam, Liam, sorry, can I interrupt you just for a second? Yeah. Norm, can you actually explain the ending instead of Liam? The whole thing was orchestrated by uh, Major Namek's character as soon as she realized that her horrible husband was back in her life to... Steal $3 million, clear her father, uh, Lithgow's father, her father-in-law's name, and then fake her own death uh, very badly by, um, uh, by way of Luger, I think. It's a Luger, right? Or some I, kind of weird chambered gun that's a semi-automatic pistol. Yes. John Lithgow shoots his own wife a bunch of times because he thinks – A that, bunch of times. Because he thinks he, she's turned on him, which allows Eric Roberts to get away. And then he's later tracked down the, by the police – and then they have a big funeral, John Lithgow does, and the cop does yeah, close right. casket because she's all messed up because of all the gunshots to her face by John Lithgow. And John Lithgow can't be arrested because he said it was in self-defense. And as the cop says, who's going to say otherwise, right? Because that's how the law works. Yeah. No, the amazing line the cop has is, what are we going to charge him with? <laughs> yeah, right? Murder. <laughs> it's murder. There's a whole bunch of different murders. There's, char- you know, you could charge him with manslaughter. You could charge him with depraved indifference because he shot her six times. Uh, with a high-powered automatic pistol. <laughs> There's all kinds of charges you could have. I mean, God, you know, kidnapping. But that little could. logic flaw is explained. And Liam, now is your chance to shine. Faked uh, murder of his wife. Why is this? What, what ends up happening with that? So uh, Eric Roberts doesn't get very far uh, despite all of his <laughs> And they, he gets captured. They get the money back. But, of course, there's a bunch of money, about three mil, that's not officially counted for uh, that hit that uh, uh, John Lithgow and uh, Machin. Uh, is that how you say her name? Machin? Machin Amick, I think. Amick. Uh, they, they get away. Basically, him and her get away with the three million. That's the unofficial three million dollars. So they managed to 
I mean, technically, the bank doesn't lose any money. So the, you, you had a question earlier about if the bank had shut down. I mean, technically, the bank officially doesn't lose a, a dime. But the money that's unofficially there is now in the possession of uh, the uh, banker and his wife. And they're going to live off this while Eric Roberts is going to just do more hand exercises in his jail cell and think about murdering her. Yes. And the cop helped them the whole time. That was their the other right. part of it. Right. He was in on it, which they needed him to be in on it for this whole ridiculous plan to work. So and I guess his father was in some way in on it as well, because he at least knew that his son was faking the death of his wife. And now his son, John Lithgow, and his young wife, they have gone sailing, I guess, for the rest of their lives with the three million dollars they have. And they will make sure not to run into anyone they ever know or communicate with them. And they will make sure to, you know, I guess have to live on the three million dollars, and if that ever runs out, they're completely fucked. Maybe they're maybe they move to Canada. What do you think about that, Liam? That'd be pretty nice. John Lithgow in Canada. I mean, here's the thing: in the '90s, we were still living in a world where people did occasionally go away. Maybe they didn't disappear forever, but it was it was something you believe in. It's hard now in our age to accept that someone actually disappears, which I'm sure people still do. It must be possible, but I just can't even imagine. Like watching it, I'm like. Where the fuck are they going to go? It's only three million dollars. Like to me, it's just I don't I don't see it. But but I guess at the time it was still like, yeah, you could disappear with a good three million to do what? I have no fucking clue. Three million dollars and a boat. They can do anything they want. They could go be pirates. Yeah, it's they 1993. Could. That's there are no they might be pirates right now. Didn't Olivia Newton John's husband fake his own death and then went off to live in Mexico for years and years? I feel like this is something that could still be done. Liam, do you know what I'm talking about here? Olivia Newton-John, I didn't, I don't know anything about that. I vaguely remember something about him faking his own death. He faked his own death. And he just like showed up last year and someone took a pictures of him just partying in Mexico. So I guess you can get away with it for a while as long as you um, – I think he, he faked his own death by falling off the side of a boat. Hey, if John Lithgow ever gets bored with his marriage, I guess he can uh, just, just dump himself off the, the side and go live in Mexico. John Lithgow in Mexico – I'd watch it. But now it, we come to the point in the show where we talk about the most important thing – Move aside erotic thriller, get over there, heist movie. We need to talk about Eric Roberts in Love, Cheat, and Steal. What do you think about this performance, Norm? Uh, I think he's doing what is what is requested of him. I think he's being a heavy who has, you know, nothing. He's, oh, I'm trying to think of who it was. Somebody once referred to um, a, a mid-period Brando performance as just nothing but desire, like nothing but want. And Roberts is kind of doing that. He only wants revenge. He only wants, I mean, he also wants to get laid from the laundromat woman, which is just a, a completely unnecessary. Now, that's an erotic thriller moment. Like that completely unnecessary extra sex scene with a woman we will never see again. That's, that screams 1992-93. And I wonder if maybe it wasn't even just added so because it has no connection to the rest of the film at Absolutely. all. Her scenes are completely isolated. There is, yeah, I meant to mention this. There is an additional photography section. Like people are credited. There's a whole other crew that's credited in the end roll about for, for additional photography. And the people who shot it have three Oscars between them. Mm. Uh, directors of photography in 1992, 93. So Jen, I did, did sorry, you catch it, this? I didn't. But now that you say that, it kind of, you know, it, it doesn't pass the smell test, right? A untested first time director, writer who never went on to do anything else. And all yeah. of these accredited people with a lot of success maybe brought in to maybe, you know, piece this thing together a little bit. 
yeah, make it more marketable, throw in a little something with, you know, throw in a little sex, throw in a little extra violence maybe. Because uh, the Danny Trejo sequence, again, is, has nothing to do with the rest of the film. It just right. it just shows up. And it's in a strip club where there's also nudity. So if you're trying to push past an R rating and get an unrated video release, which was all the rage in 93, then those two scenes could actually be the things that they added after the fact. And the people who shot the additional scenes, whether they were, <coughs> excuse me, whether they were these or something else, uh, it's it's uh, Janusz Kaminski who shot Schindler's List oh. the same year. You and, mean cool yeah. as ISIS, Janusz Kaminski? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Mario Fiore who who won an Oscar for for the cinematography of Avatar. Oh, so these two cinematographers just showed up and did this work for hire. I'm assuming for a couple of days, but they got credited for it, and it's just incredibly weird to me. That is that, because the film is visually just utterly undistinguished. There's nothing that suggests real people worked on it with real talent. It feels like it was made by committee. Just sort of every shot is the most generic angle. And, and you know, they, they like a lot of masters. They like a lot of shots where people are standing up uh, <coughs> in the full frame and yelling at each other. It's not a film that struck me as particularly stylish. And yet these two filmmakers, these two directors of photography are immense talents so that was weird for those who've listened uh to recent episodes of eric roberts the fucking man a few months back we covered 1992's final analysis which was uh, Ooh, another yeah. another kind of twisty noirish uh film uh with erotic elements as well that one actually has a lot more visual style probably because they're trying to ape hitchcock so much than right, this but that one. was uh, that was phil Yuanu, right the guy that's, who made uh the u2 documentary that's, Rattle and that's absolutely correct and eric roberts performance in final analysis he's playing almost exactly the same character there as he is here right i mean this Ooh. is a character that he kind of excels at it's one of his modes where he's just like completely you know alpha male threatening at all times kind of a slightly loose cannon but the charm that he can turn on to make you like him in certain scenes and it's i mean it's basically exactly the same character liam what did you think of eric roberts performance in love cheat and steal it's his kind of classic like you were kind of describing there it's it's a character he's done before this kind of scumbaggy whatever i i i think he owns the performance but um i don't know i mean as we kind of said in a couple different ways it's it's a pretty horrifying character in a lot of ways. Like it's, 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 I mean, I don't know. I guess that's kind of the point, but it was not pleasant to watch. So it's hard for me to say like, Oh, Eric Roberts is really great in this. It's like, yeah, I mean, his performance is, is good, but what I'm watching is so gross and unnecessarily gross that I don't know that I can be stoked on it. All right. Uh, I, um, yeah, I mean, it is kind of Eric Roberts' performance or Eric Roberts' character number B12 or whatever. I, I, right. I, should, I, mean, I shouldn't have used a letter-number combination that's already connected with something people recognize. But, you know, this yeah. is kind of a, a stock Eric Roberts' character that we've seen in a, a number of different roles. Again, I think he's very effective at it. I also think that he gives what is likely the most distinguished performance in the entire movie, but that has less to do, that's kind of less of a compliment to him than it is a insult to the rest of the performances. Uh, and, and again, it's not necessarily that John Lithgow or Madge and Amick are bad at all. It's just that they don't really have a lot interesting to do. Um, we haven't really talked about Madge and maybe we should talk about her briefly. She is still performing regularly. Of course, she was on the Twin Peaks uh, revival uh, from last year and it apparently is on the TV show Riverdale where she plays a character named Alice Cooper which I find very amusing uh, 
I, just because we, ha- I think it's unfair that we haven't gotten her given her any attention at all. What do you think of her performance in this, Norm? Uh, I think she's fine. She she's obviously you know like she can't do anything because she can't reveal her agenda. She's sure. she's the twist, so she can't telegraph it or give it away. I think she's um she's was criticized fairly often as being a kind of a limited actor, but she's she's great in a very narrow range. Um, there's a movie she made with James Spader around the same time called Dream Lover that is like just terrific mm. that no one saw. It just disappeared. I think it was a straight to video release in in Canada, Polygram Pictures maybe picked it up and then they just, they went away really fast. So it went into limbo. I'm not even sure it's available nowadays, but uh, Nicholas, if I remember correctly, Nicholas Kazan directed it and it's, um, it's, it's really good. And both she and Spader are terrific in it. And so every time, yeah, 93, it was the same year. And so every time I see her in something around the same period, I think, oh, there's a there's a missed opportunity because she's never as good as she was in that one movie. But, um, yep, Nicholas Kazan wrote and directed it. And he found something in her, in her stillness, in her sort of um, – she can seem stiff because her features are so big right. that – if she like she doesn't move her face a lot because I'm sure at some point someone told her your cheekbones are, are gonna throw shadows over your jaw, so don't ever move your face. But <clears throat> she has presence and she's you know, she's she's good enough in this film that she is capable of making us believe she's afraid of Roberts, which is really the only thing she needs to do in the film. Uh so she's fine. I mean, I've seen her be better. Right. But uh, she's certainly not a weak link or anything. It's again, she and Lithgow are both just sort of so low key that it's hard to uh, it's hard to find fault with their performances because um, uh, because Roberts is going so big, right? He just he just blows out anything else that's going on. And of course, her her most well known performance is from the Mick Garris horror film Sleepwalkers from 1992. Which, oh uh, <laughs> God, right? And or uh, that that Toby Hooper TV movie I'm Dangerous Tonight, where there's an evil dress. <laughs> Uh, that was an early home video release. I remember reviewing that one. But you know, she can have fun. She's capable of of being of being kind of kind of goofy sometimes. This Absolutely. just you wouldn't know that from this film is the only problem. Liam, uh, were you impressed at all by her performance here? Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree though. The plot demands that she not reveal a whole lot. I mean, she spends most of her time either being disgusted by Eric Roberts or then mysteriously being kind of turned on by Eric Roberts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like and, grudgingly sexualizing him. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's and, and so that's that is such a weird. Uh, Any time that someone is that, a, especially a woman in a film like this, is completely disgusted by a man and then turns the corner. Uh, that always feels like such a fucking weird thing that I can't. I, so whatever, she's fine. But I just feel like again, what she's being asked to do it doesn't really sell her as an actress for me per se. You know what I mean? But that's not her fault. It's just that there's not a lot there. You know. All right. Now we need to talk about the subject at hand. The very title of this podcast is Eric Roberts, the fucking man. In the movie Love, Cheat, and Steal from the year 1993. I'm going to start with our guest, Norm. Norm, is Eric Roberts the fucking man in this movie? Well, unfortunately, by definition, he is not because he is the patsy. Uh, the role the film forces him into is that he cannot be the man. He thinks he is. He's deceiving himself. And in the end, he is played. He, he You know what? He played himself as uh, the, the great uh, <laughs> philosopher of our time <laughs> has said, Liam... We just heard that Eric Roberts is not the man on a technicality. Do you agree? Is Eric Roberts the fucking man in this movie? 
I still gotta go with he's the fucking man. <laughs> Gonna elaborate on that at all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I'm not thinking just about his. There's plenty of roles where I've declared him the man as the, as an actor in the film, where his character is a you know a loser in many different ways. I think in this particular film, um, I don't like the way it's written. I don't like what he's been being given to do, but I. I he's certainly more alive and more of a sense of vitality in the film than a lot of the other, uh, actors, uh, in it. So I still got to go with, he's the man. He, he brings something to the role, even if I didn't particularly enjoy, uh, what the role was. Picture this love, cheat and steal two. Eric Roberts breaks out of jail again, tracks down John Lithgow, kills his wife, kills John Lithgow. He's no longer the patsy. He gets one over on them. He steals all their money and goes off to live in, let's say, Aruba or something like that. Would that change your opinion on whether he's the fucking man or not, Norm? Well, I mean, it's revisionist, obviously. So it would perhaps... I don't think so. The guy's name is Reno. He's not the man. (laughs) Not revisionist. That is canon in my mind. So So how long after the events of the first film? I mean, do we have... Like, is it a post-9-11 world where... Uh, they can't travel incognito as easily. Is okay. it 1998? I, mean, I didn't you know? realize there'd be so many follow-up questions, but yes, this is the late 90s, and Eric Roberts befriends a hacker. He hacks himself out of prison, and then he hacks him his way into tracking down John Lithgow. He, of course, kills the hacker three-quarters of the way through the movie for reasons that are undetermined. <laughs> Probably sure. That's his thing. That. Hey, you can't trust him. He's Eric Roberts. Eric Roberts <laughs> is the fucking man. I, I have the deciding tie-breaking tie vote here. Eric Roberts is the fucking man in the movie Love, Cheat, and Steal from the year 1993. Uh, pretty poor movie. Uh, if you ever wanted to see uh, Eric Roberts tangle with John Lithgow, you uh, the, the images that are in your mind are almost certainly more entertaining and more interesting than what you see in this film, unfortunately. That said, it, you know it does have that kind of twistiness that some people enjoy. It has a little bit of sex, has a little bit of this and that and a heist it almost has too much and also not enough so uh if you're a big eric roberts fan you can always track down uh love cheat and steal it's actually a little hard to track down i think it was made as an on-demand dvd a few years ago but uh you i'm sure you can if you try hard enough you can see it but that's all we have to say about love cheat and steal we need to take our final break when we return we're going to talk a little with norm we're going to do a little plugging and we're going to say good night <laughs> And that was episode number 72 of Eric Roberts is 
the fucking man. I want to give a massive thank you to the wonderful writer and critic Norm Wilner, who is not just those two things. He is also a podcaster. Norm, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk about Eric Roberts and his library of impressive work. I'm sure you've turned around on the whole subject <laughs> of post-1980s Eric Roberts now that you've reached the end of the show. Where can people find you and your work on the internet? Uh, let's see. I'm on Twitter at Norm Wilner, all one word. You can find my podcast on iTunes on, uh, no, it's not on Spotify yet on iTunes, Google play and Stitcher, uh, and Apple podcasts or wherever you, you fetch your pods. You can find it. It's called someone else's movie. It's, uh, three years old now. And, uh, we have people on, uh, to talk about films they love, but didn't make. And it's just kind of an advocacy show. I'm very proud of that. Uh, tries not to shit on movies and just generally encourage people to love what they love. Uh, I'm, I write for now magazine. You can find me online at nowtoronto.com. Uh, I have a blog, wilnervision.com that collects pretty much everything I do. You can find links to all my stuff there. And, um, also you can find me wandering the streets of, of Toronto going from screening room to screening room, uh, this month as, as we prepare for hot dogs. If you see Norm, if you see Norm on the streets of Toronto, say hello. And yes, I strongly recommend all of that work. And of course, we'll link all of it in the show notes of today's episode. Liam, what's going on over at Cinepunks and in your life in general? Well, as you noted, we just talked to Ryan Prowse for an episode that went really well. Um, and What films uh, did you talk about in that episode? A little Abel Ferrer action. Yeah, King of New York and um, Bad Lieutenant. And turns out I'm the only person who likes King of New York. So that was weird. What? I like King of New York. I'm with I you. love that movie. But uh, <laughs> my co-host and our guest both did not like it and were confused as to why I did. And I felt very <laughs> I felt very put upon. I was kind of put on the defensive because I wasn't expecting that at all. Like, I, I feel like I didn't make a full throated defense because I was not expecting that. Like, no part of me thought. I should go into this ready to really fight for King of New York. They were both like, oh, it's kind of sucked. I was like, wait, what? What are you saying out loud? What are the words that you're using? I'm really confused right this now. This is why you need a podcast like Norm's where you advocate for a film without all that negativity. Well, to be fair, that's the general idea. But we also, you know, when we have a guest on, my goal is to have the guest choose the film so that they feel comfortable. I want them to pick something that they feel comfortable discussing. Um, because we had a couple episodes where guests were like, we'll pick whatever you want. We did. And then they were like, yeah, I don't know what to say about it. And I'm like, okay, well, this isn't fun. That's not a thing. <laughs> what I have, you know, so so I want the guests to be like, this is something I'm excited to talk sure, about. Of course. And it is. But and it made for a good episode. But I, I don't know. It was just weird to be like, wow, I can't believe neither one of you like this movie. All so, right. So wait, he picked the movie and didn't like it. Well, what he wanted to do was gritty New York films. Right. We were gonna go. We were gonna go with Mean Streets, but that felt um, almost too. Well, not even just obvious, but also too much. We didn't have it. I feel like if I'm gonna talk about Mean Streets, I'm, I want to go in like loaded with research and some. Sure, sure. It's Scorsese is such well trad, you know. Whereas uh, King of New York, not a lot of people talking about King of New York right now. So I feel pretty good. I don't need to have deep dives on shit. But uh, but I really had to go to the defense of the film, which I really love, and I especially love Christopher Walken's performance. I think it's really great, sure. and that was the part that was a real sticker for them. They really didn't like his performance. Yeah. I think that's what bummed them out Ooh. in the movie. Well, oh, yeah. he's so good in it. Yeah, maybe people shouldn't check out Low Life now that I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, we're on on the same page that Bad Lieutenant is amazing, but yeah, well, you know. Well, speaking of Abel Ferreira. 
uh, Liam. He, uh, a couple years ago, made a biopic of Pier Paolo Pasolini, and there's a series of articles on Cinepunks.com, uh, conversations between myself and Adriana Gober about the life and the filmography of Pasolini, which we've been doing in uh, in his filmography in chronological order, been having some really nice conversations, which then have been transcribed into articles on your webpage. I appreciate that. Um, it sounds really boring, but it's actually really interesting. <laughs> well, we're getting to the stuff that people might actually care about now. Yeah, but yeah, uh, sure. I mean, it's something that it's a project that had been in the works for a long time. I'm a huge fan of Pasolini. I love to uh, dive into his work on a deeper level and to read, you know, some of his uh, essays and poetry as we're going along with it. I think, you know, t- to me, it's kind of an introductory guide to his work. And even as someone like myself who still has huge gaps in regards to his work, uh, it, I think it's a good introductory spot for people who want to jump on the Pasolini train, Liam. I mean, I think that's worth a, I think Pasolini is one of those directors that when people feel like they don't know about him, that they don't know where to jump in. Right. So I think you, what you and Adriana are doing is a great way for people to sort of get involved without feeling like, oh, no, I don't know what I'm doing or I don't know what I should be watching. I did not like Ferreira's Pasolini film. That said, I'm uh, now that I'm going to be a lot more familiar with his work, I'm going to revisit it. and Maybe I'll like it a little bit more. I actually saw it at TIFF a few years back, and uh, I, I think I'm maybe – I just wasn't in the right headspace, or maybe I just didn't think Willem Dafoe was the right uh, person to play him. Liam, where else can people find you on the internet? Just just Cinepunks.com. Everything else doesn't matter. And you're on Twitter. Oh, God. At Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z, on Twitter. That's true. I am there. That's right. a place I am. All right. You can check Liam out over there, and we'll, we'll link him in the show notes as well, just to make sure everyone gets equal treatment. You can find out more about Eric Roberts is the fucking man over at ericrobertsistheman.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Why don't you uh, leave us a review? We'd appreciate it very, very much. You can also follow Eric Roberts is the fucking man on Twitter at E-R-I-T-F-M. Or why don't you do a search for Eric Roberts is the man on Facebook. And you can follow us on there as well. Keep up on all the latest Eric Roberts news. Don't forget to actually follow Eric Roberts himself on Twitter as well. At Eric Roberts, all one word. Also, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E. Why? And of course, you can check out my other podcast, which just uh, returned after a uh, a, a hiatus. Uh, that's No Budget Nightmares over at NoBudgetPodcast.com or at NoBudgetPodcast on Twitter. We uh, we cover a lot of micro-budget, no-budget DIY cinema. We just did an episode on Who Killed Captain Alex, the first Ugandan action film made for $200. It is Absolutely amazing. You can watch it right now legally and for free on YouTube, and I strongly recommend it if you're in, uh, at all interested in micro-budget cinema. But with that said, we've taken up too much of your time as it is. It's time to close up the Eric Roberts bag for another week. We'll be back again on Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man in just another couple of weeks or so with another Eric Roberts classic. Good night, everybody. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. If there's anything that you can do, Eric Roberts fucking can.